I appreciate Jason jumping in there. Tyler's off um, finishing up baseball season uh, for North Oconee, and so I appreciate Jason being here today and leading us. Uh, we are it, been in a series uh, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, kind of going through that. Today we come to the end of chapter 3, a little bit of some verses that we covered last week, but I didn't go into depth into this particular verse. Um, and so I wanted to spend a little extra time here. Next week is actually going to wrap up the series in Colossians. Um, and so we'll take a look at some of the key characters that Paul mentions in chapter 4. And uh, it'll get to, again, part of the point of why Paul writes that letter. Uh, some stuff that was going on behind the scenes in the church in Colossae. Um, and then when we, so then coming after next week, I'm planning on, our small group's been studying First uh, and Second Peter, and so that's piqued my interest to uh, look at the life of Peter. And so I think that's where we're going to go for our summer series, is looking at Peter's life and then also the letters that he wrote. Um, our verse for today is short. You're going to be standing for about 15 seconds. Uh, but as is our custom, I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We'll read Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Um, here we go. Here's what Paul writes. Let's read together. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You may be seated. Thank you so much. That wasn't, that wasn't difficult at all. Um, all right, so uh, let's kind of walk into these verse, this verse here together. He begins by saying fathers. Notice he doesn't say fathers and mothers. He says fathers. Uh, this is a specific address, a specific message that Paul has for fathers. Um, some people might say, well, maybe Paul was talking to parents. He was thinking of mom and dad. Um, I, I, as I'm looking through this section of Scripture, um, Paul makes specific addresses to specific people. And you can see this in this slide here. Um, in verse 18, he mentions wives. In verse 20, he speaks specifically to husbands. When he gets down to verse 22, he's speaking specifically to children. So he has a specific message for children. Uh, when we get to verse uh, chapter, I think it's verse 22, uh, where he mentions bond servants or the servants that were in the household. When he gets to chapter 4 and verse 1, he mentions the master of the house. So this is the person who had been the eldest patriarch of the home, who was run, responsible for that home and that estate. And so Paul had some very specific words for individual members of the household through this whole section of scripture that starts at verse 18 in chapter 3. And so it seems a little odd to me that Paul addresses fathers, but we would say, well, he's actually talking to fathers and mothers here. If Paul had wanted to do that, there's actually a Greek word gnosis, which translates parents. And so he had the word available to him if he wanted to address both fathers and mothers. So that's how I'm going to treat this passage, that Paul is speaking a specific message two fathers. So this is an early Father's Day sermon, if you would. But um, anyhow, that's kind of where we're at. Verse 21. Let's dig into this. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children. The Greek word that's translated provoke is the word erythizete, and it means to stir up or to excite. Sometimes this word is used in a positive sense. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2, Paul uses this word. He writes, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal, talking about the Corinthians' zeal, he's here at the end of the letter, he says about the Corinthians' zeal, has stirred up, erythezete, has stirred up most of them. So on this occasion, the provocation uh, provoking these people has been a positive outcome. That is, that the, as others, Christians, other believers in other cities have learned about the zeal of the Corinthians for Christ, it has stirred up, or erythezete, people in the surrounding areas, other Christians. However, when we come to Colossians 3 and verse 21, erythezete has a negative connotation. Here, the result of the provocation produces discouragement, specifically discouragement in children. 
So whatever it means to provoke your children, well, that's something that we want to avoid. Some translations give us a little better clue as to what Paul means when he uses this term, and they use the word um, exasperate. For example, in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children lest they become discouraged. Um, Again, we probably all know about exasperation. Uh, We've had bosses that were exasperating. Perhaps we've had some siblings that were exasperating. Perhaps we've even had parents at times that felt like we were being exasperated by them. They pushed us and pushed us and pushed us until finally we felt like we were going to explode. Uh, It was a constant, steady drip, 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 the nag, 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 the needling, needling from those individuals until finally we just felt like we were going to explode. Some of us have fuses that burn long. Some of us have fuses that burn short. But all of us get to a point where it's like, okay, enough needling is enough. I cannot take any more of this. And the Bible is saying, dads, when we exasperate our children like that, the net result is discouragement. You say, Gordon, I think I understand what you're saying, but could you put some handles on this? Could you give us some examples of what exasperating our children might look like? Um, sure, I'd be happy to. We got, I got four ways for you that fathers sometimes exasperate their children. Here's number one. The first way to exasperate your children is to favor one child above the rest. Dads, when we focus all of our time and our energy and our conversation on one child, that's an example of exasperating the other children. If the conversation, no matter where it starts, always ends up back on the one child, that is favoring one child above the rest. If we seem to brag to our friends, if we seem to brag to grandma and grandpa more often about one child than we do the other children, that's an example of favoring one child above the rest. Um, And that is a surefire way to exasperate your children. Jacob did this. For example, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Skip on down. It says, And Joseph brought a bad report concerning his brother to his brothers to their father, Jacob. He says in verse 3, Now Israel, that's Jacob's God-given name, Jacob, um, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. He made Joseph a robe of many colors. So he, he demonstrated how, how he was, um, his favoritism for his son by giving his son this beautiful robe. Verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all the others, um, they hated Joseph, and they could not even speak peacefully to their brother. It exasperated them so much they didn't want to have anything to do with their young brother, Joseph. Friends, if you want a surefire way to exasperate and provoke your children, just do what Jacob did. Favor one of your children over the others. Number two, second way to exasperate your children is to never admit that you are wrong. To never admit that you are wrong. In other words, give your children the impression that because you're the parent, that you are above correction and that you never do anything wrong. Last week we got in the car after I had said some, and once we were heading down the road, had been 10 minutes left the building, and I said something that incited the car. Or something, I don't even know what it was that I said. But I said something that incited the car, and there was a little bit of back and forth, and one of my daughters piped up and she said, Dad, aren't we supposed to be establishing our home in peace? <laughs> Last week's sermon. And so I'm like, oh no. Uh, so I mean, I hadn't gotten left the building 10 minutes, and I already failed on that. You know, friends, we're going to get it wrong more than we get it right. 
Even Jesus' own mother got it wrong sometimes. For example, toward the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he was out healing people, he was casting out demons, he was preaching, and he very quickly developed a very large following. A lot of people were, masses of people were following Jesus around from place to place. Uh, well, Mary gets word of all this, and she thinks that Jesus has gone crazy. She thinks he's gone bonkers. And so she sends some of Jesus' younger siblings out to beg him to come home. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. And when his family heard about these things, about his popularity and all that he was doing, they went out to seize him. They went out to literally grab their older brother and drag him back home. It says, for they were saying, Jesus is out of his mind. That was his mom. That was her assessment of Jesus' public ministry as he got started. When that did not work, when Jesus didn't just come home, Mary herself said, well, I guess I'm going to have to go get him. And so Mary herself went to go get Jesus. Mark chapter 3 and verse 31 says, And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside the house where Jesus was teaching, and they sent word inside to him. So they're wanting him to come outside the house. Jesus, we need to have a family conversation about this ministry that you're starting up, about all these people that are following after you, about how you seem to have lost your mind. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around Jesus inside the home, and they said to him, hey, look, your mom and your brothers are outside the house, and I think they want to talk to you. Look at Jesus' response, verse 33. He answered them saying, I'm not worried about them. Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are they? Verse 34, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, talking to the crowd. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, Jesus just ignored his mom's instructions because she was in the wrong. The point is, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, got it wrong sometimes. Did Jesus need for his mom to be perfect for him to turn out okay? No. Thank goodness, right? What, they, what he needed, rather, was <clears throat> when we mess up, is for her to be honest, for us to be honest and sincere, and admit that we have made a mistake. Failure to admit our mistakes, being prideful, friends, that will exasperate children. Um, I know what some of us are probably thinking, but I'm the parent. And if I'm, as the parent, if I admit that I'm wrong, then won't my kids lose respect for me? Won't they say, well, mom and dad are wrong all the time, and so... They just, they won't listen or heed what I have to say. Well, actually, it works just the opposite. Um, instead of gaining respect for us by not admitting that we're wrong, instead of gaining respect, they lose it. Fathers who are dishonest, who are prideful, who won't admit when they're wrong, friends, that sows seeds of discouragement and it exasperates children. Number three, third way to exasperate your children is to always have something negative to say toward them. In other words, never compliment your child when they get it right, but instead always point out when they get it wrong. Friends, giving constant corrections will build up those negative emotions and will wall off your children emotionally to you. Psychologists tell us that for every one negative comment that we make to our children, we need to make three positive comments just to balance out the scales. And if we want to exasperate our children, it's very easy to do. Just leave off all the positive comments. You'll find them exasperated. Now, I'm not talking about cheap flattery here. I'm not talking about undeserved praise. Rather, I'm talking about genuine recognition for good behavior and for their accomplishments. Um, back when Claire and I were dating, we went out to play tennis every so often. And one day we went out to the tennis courts and there was this dad there. And he was feeding balls back and forth across the court to his son. And he had in his mind that his son was going to be the next Rafael Nadal, if you know anything about tennis. So he was going to be the next big thing. Um, he was pounding balls to his son one after another after another. And he was hollering at him. 
and he was criticizing his son. And his son was on the other side of the net, and he was trying his very best. I mean, he was giving it all that he had. He was really into it. He was trying to hit the ball back correctly. But every time he hit a ball, his dad had something negative to say. He had some criticism to make. Well, Claire and I, I mean, we literally, we stayed for like 10 minutes. I mean, it was, it was all, I couldn't, I just couldn't be there. I just could not take it anymore. I was about ready to go over there and hit the guy with my own tennis racket. And I thought, okay, that probably would not be what Jesus did. But anyhow, um, so we just, we just left because I just couldn't take it anymore. But I can guarantee you one thing about that family. That son, when he got old enough to leave that house, he probably never came back again because his father had exasperated him so much. You can guarantee that you will exasperate your children if the only thing you have to say to them is something negative. Number four, last one. Fourth way to exasperate your children is to never confront them about their bad behavior. To never confront them about their bad behavior. In other words, just let them do whatever they want to do. Um, And there's plenty of parents that try this or have attempted this or that are attempting this. But strangely, in the heart of a child, it works the same as when you have negative things to say. I've got a couple of, I've got an example of this from David's life in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 6. Um, David is an old man. He's nearing the very end of his life. And he has a son named Adonijah. He's the next in line, assuming that maybe he'll take the crown. But David hasn't announced yet he'll take the crown. And so Adonijah thinks, you know what? My dad's toward the end of his life. I'll just go ahead and usurp my dad and his whatever decision he makes. And I'll just go ahead and beat him to the punch. I'll go get the crown. I'll put it on my head. I'll, I'll um, uh, what's the word that we use, right? What's the word when you're going to coronate or something like that? I'll coronate myself. Thank you very much. I appreciate the audience interaction there. I'll coronate myself, and I'll become the next king. Um, well, so Adonijah, um, look at what happens. It says in verse chapter, 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 6, how Adonijah got to this point. It says his father, this is the Bible's assessment of David's parenting. It says his father David had never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking, why have you done thus and so? In other words, he never questioned his son. He never corrected his son. And instead of growing up to love and respect his father, Adonijah became a menace. Adonijah leads a coup against his father and attempts to steal the throne while his father is still alive in his old age. Friends, if you want to produce a healthy child who is submitted and respectful, withholding discipline from them is not the way to do that. It will only exasperate the child all the more. All right, let's sum up. Paul makes a direct appeal here to fathers saying, Fathers, do not provoke or exasperate your children. To exasperate them means to stir them up in a negative way until they get to the point where they just are going to explode. And four ways that we sometimes do this, even without realizing it are, number one, we favor one child over the other. Number two, we fail to admit when we mess up. Number three, we exasperate our children by always having something negative to say or something critical to say. We never follow that up and balance it out with positive things. And number four, and finally, we can exasperate our children when we don't confront them about their bad behavior. We just let all of that go unchecked. Friends, that as a totality, is a recipe for an ill-tempered, disrespectful, exasperated child. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, uh, you know, obviously it's not quite Father's Day. You're preaching to the fathers here, and I'm not a father, and so or my kids are already raised, and they're out of the home, so what difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, I'm going to speak directly to the dads here in just a few moments, but before I do, I have something for all of us. 
for all of us to consider. Um, perhaps as I've been describing this father who exasperates, as we've seen this example, different examples of exasperating fathers, you may think to yourself, you know what? I had one of those. I, I grew up in a house like that. I grew up in a house where my dad favored one of my brothers or sisters over me. Um, I grew up in a house where, you know, my dad never apologized or admitted that he was wrong. I, I grew up in a house that was overly critical, or I grew up in a house that pretty much mom did all the disciplining. My dad never cared, showed that he loved me enough to discipline me. Friends, if that's the kind of father that you had, psychologists tell us that it can produce in us some very unwanted results. It can lead to insecurity. It can lead to an inability to bond with your own spouse. It can prevent you from freely and openly sharing unconditional love with others, especially with your own children. It can lead to seeking affirmation through achievement because you weren't getting it from dad. It can lead to sexual exploration and promiscuity. Basically, fathers who exasperate their children open up a scar in their children that can literally last for generations. Let me share with you a few brief excerpts from the story of one exasperated child. He writes, I must have been about 10 when I became aware that something was terribly wrong with dad and with my parents' marriage. I can't count the number of times that my brothers and I would watch our inebriated father stumble through the house with mother reciting his failures at the top of her lungs. Every time it happened, something inside of me would die toward my dad. And that's a terrible feeling for a young boy. As I moved into my teenage years, dad's drinking became worse. I, more than my brothers, became the in-house mediator trying to keep the peace. I would go back and forth between my parents, trying to help them understand each other. It was an impossible task for a boy. And in the end, it only made me the enemy of both. He said, you swallow a lot of pain when at 15, you tell your dad not to come out of his room until your friends have left the house. The worst part, however, was not the alcohol. It was what we missed because of our dad's dependence on the alcohol. We missed him. We missed his heart. We missed his closeness. We missed his affirmation. We missed hearing his teaching, seeing his conviction, experiencing his leadership. End of quote. Now that story may only be shades of what some of us experienced, but what I want you to know is the important part of that story is not all the pain and all the dysfunction, it's what happened next. And this is a true story. The man who wrote that story is Dr. Robert Lewis. I've known about and followed his writings for years. Dr. Robert Lewis was this at one time, the senior pastor for about 20 years of uh, Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he began a, a ministry that went, uh, had global influence uh, about fathers and sons and how to pass along uh, healthy generational uh, virtues and attributes from, from father to son. Um, he appeared on shows like Focus on the Family and num numerous, <coughs> numerous other Christian publications. My point is this. Just because our story might resemble that story does not mean that we are sentenced to repeat it. Let me say that again. Just because our story might resemble that story does not mean that we are sentenced to repeat it. 
If you would, flip over in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Actually, our teenagers this morning um, studied this, this text, and so kind of got them prepped. They, they know where we're going. Um, it's the story of young King Josiah who had an exasperating father. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. It reads, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. Get this, he was eight years old when he became king. Eight, right? And so he's 31 years he reigned, so he's 39 when he dies. So at eight, he became king. Verse 2, it says that the Bible's assessment of his leadership was, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, to fully appreciate the stark turnaround that happened from Josiah, from his father to Josiah, that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't deviate to the right or to the left, it says, to, uh, to appreciate the stark contrast that is, exists between Josiah and the generations before him. We need to flip back just a couple of verses to 2 Chronicles 33, beginning at verse 21. It's talking about Josiah's dad. It says, Josiah's dad, Ammon, was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for just how many years? Just two. You say, well, why did the guy only reign for two years? Well, look, verse 22, it says, because he, that is Ammon, Josiah's dad, did so much evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. So now we've got multiple generations of people who were passing along this generational curse of evil. So Josiah's father, Ammon, was, in, was a terrible king and only lasted for two years. And his father before him did evil in the sight of... So this is, this is Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, also did evil in God's sight. Here's some of the stuff that they did. It says in verse 22, Ammon sacrificed to all the images that his dad Manasseh had made and served them. Verse 23, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Verse 24, things got so bad under Ammon. Here's why he only reigned for two years. Things got so bad that his own servants conspired against him and put him to death. The king was so atrocious and his leadership was so vile that they had to murder the king. But what a different picture we get when we come to Josiah's reign. Going back to chapter 34 and verse 2, it says that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That is, he stayed focused, just like Dr. Robert Lewis did. Friends, your past does not have to determine your future. This is the difference that Jesus makes. Jesus brings healing. Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus brings new life. You may have drawn the short straw in life, but through the power of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit, you can overcome. You can have victory. Just ask Dr. Lewis. Just ask Josiah. All right, well, that's the first difference that all this makes to your life and to mine. First of all, that no matter our past in Jesus, we can break the generational curse and establish a God-honoring future for our family. Number two, the second difference that this has to do with your life and to mine is directed at dads. So far we've talked about what not to do. Now I want to give you a couple of things that you should do. Here are two ways, dads, for you to bless your children. Number one, give your children verbal affirmation. Give your children verbal affirmation. Verbal affirmation is more than just not being critical. It means opening your mouth and saying words like, I'm proud of you. I respect you. 
I'm so glad that God gave you to me and to our family. Friends, these kinds of genuine words provide strength and encouragement and blessings to the heart of your children. This is why the proverb says, Proverbs 16 and verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Again, I'm not talking about flattery. I'm talking about genuine affirmation of character traits in your child that you see, that you really admire, and that you really love and are glad is there. You know, for the four years that I was off at college, my dad used to send my brother and I little encouraging notes. And he would include a few dollars in the note, and that was always nice to get the few dollars. But honestly, I like the notes better than I like the money. He would say things like, Gordy, <laughs> I'm proud of you. He would say, live for Jesus today. Give your best today. Your mom and I are praying for you. Friends, reading those notes was like sweet honeycomb, food for the soul, and health for the body. Dad's one of the greatest blessings that you will ever give your children are words of affirmation. Number two, and finally, how do you bless your children? Number two is to get to know them personally. To get to know them personally. You say, Gordon, what do you mean getting to know my kids? I mean, I know my kids. I know who they are. I know their birthday. I know their room. I know where they go to school. I know all kinds of stuff about them. Well, I'm talking about what's beyond the facts. What's beyond just the data. There's a person beneath all of that. There's hopes. There's dreams. There's aspirations in life. There's disappointments. There's frustrations. Getting to know the person that you're living alongside in a home. Moms are great at doing this, right? Moms do this kind of thing intuitively. They're looking for the person behind the facts. Um, and so for us dads, we need a little bit more instruction about what it is that we're supposed to do and get to know them. Like, what does it look like? Well, for starters, we can pepper our children with questions. Questions like, what's your least favorite subject in school? What's your most favorite subject in school? Who's one of your best friends? What's the worst part of your day? What's the best part of your day? What is it that you're most afraid of when you go to school? What do you most look forward to? Who's the person that you least get along with? And why do you think that you least get along with that person? Who do you like in the Bible? Who do you think God is calling you to be in your life? Dads, we have to listen to our children. We have to hear about their dreams and their struggles, their fears and their hopes. You say, but Gordon, my children don't want to talk to me about all that stuff. Oh, yes, they do. They may look at you funny when you start peppering them with questions and asking about these sorts of things. But what you'll find out is that when they realize that you really do want to listen, it'll be like a faucet that you just can't even turn off, right? I mean, the thing's just going to keep running and running. They'll be so glad that you want to listen to them. Men, our children are dying to tell us who they are. If we'll just ask them the questions and then pay attention as they answer. And let me add that we cannot be going 100 miles an hour all day long and then get home and take 15 minutes with our children at night and expect that to work. Love for a child is spelled T-I-M-E. And some of us, when we get home, we're not really home. We don't engage with the family. We retreat to the TV. We retreat to the workshop. We retreat to the yard. We never really come home, even though physically we're there. And so, guys, we've got to learn to stop and to disengage from work and to disengage from our worries and to be with our family. And that may be the hardest thing for any of us men to do, but that's what we've got to do.
I got one final thought for us. You say, Gordon, I mean, I hear what you're saying. That's a lot of information to take in, and I can see where I need to make some corrective measures, but my big problem is how. Like, how do I become this man for whom this is more natural, this is more intuitive in my relationship with my kids? I, I, I might. This is possible. Um, my dad raised my brother. And, there we go. <laughs> my dad raised my brother and I this way. And I remember seeing my dad early in the... Oh, it's terrible. Sorry. You'll realize in a little while partly why I'm so emotional. But anyway. My dad raised my brother and I this way. And I remember seeing my dad early in the morning. I apologize. Sometimes in the evenings with his Bible, just literally, he would sit in his chair and he'd have his Bible just laid out in his lap. and He'd be reading through his Bible. He'd be spending some time in quiet with the Lord. And those quiet times with Jesus and with God's Word, Jesus was making my dad into the father that my brother and I needed him to be. Could he get mad? Could he get frustrated? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes it was much deserved, and that was exactly what was needed. But it was the quiet time that he spent with Jesus that transformed an ordinary man into an extraordinary father. Men, that's where we're going to find the strength. That's where we're going to find the resources. That's where we're going to find the character to be the man that our father needs us to be. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to our heart today. For some of us, Lord, as we look back through some of this information, there are some scars. There are some things, Lord, that were planted in us that uh, netted some unwelcome results. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the great healer. You did that for Dr. Robert Lewis. You did that for Josiah. You did that for so many biblical characters through human history. You've done that for many of us. Lord, we ask that you would reach down in the wounds, that we would allow your hand to go there, that you would bring supernatural healing. Because, Lord, that's what we need. We need a healing at the level of our soul. Lord, we ask that you would just, through this quiet time, that you'd work in our hearts. Lord, for others of us, we're reminded of a dad who was an extraordinary man. And, Lord, we're thankful. And we thank you and praise you for him. God, we ask that uh, you would just bless him today. That you would remind those fathers that they've done a great job. Affirm them, Lord. Affirm them through our words. Affirm them through the lives that they see us living. God, all of us need your help. Where we need your, uh, your hand, your blessing, your strength, your resources, your character. Where we ask that you would, just in these quiet moments of communion, as we remember, Lord, your broken body and your shed blood, God, that you would embolden us, strengthen us, give us a clearer vision of the Father that you want for us to be. Where we commit this time to you and we pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.